welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Would you like to be a guest in our recording studio? Here's your chance. Please take some time to fill out our audience survey available now at AJC.org slash podcast survey. It will only take a minute, and even if you don't land a guest spot, you will receive a special gift from AJC. Your feedback will help shape future episodes of People of the Pod. Go to AJC.org slash podcast survey. In 2017, the Chicago Dyke March, one of many summertime demonstrations dedicated to lesbian visibility and activism, ejected marchers carrying rainbow flags emblazoned with Stars of David. This year, it promoted its upcoming event with a cartoon image showing the burning of Israeli and American flags. Ethan Felsen has been a progressive activist for more than 30 years and now serves as executive director of A Wider Bridge, a nonprofit connecting American and Israeli LGBTQ communities that tries to raise awareness about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Just last week, A Wider Bridge became the first LGBTQ organization to be welcomed into the American Zionist movement. Ethan is with us now to discuss why the Chicago Dyke March has been so hostile towards supporters of Israel. Ethan, welcome. Good morning. Morning. So how is the Chicago Dyke March different from similar marches in other cities? I mean, what is its mission? It's best for them to define their mission. We should recognize that these are decentralized movements and they have a place in the protest space. So they are a way in which people are expressing, as it were, their bill of particulars with society. And the dominant theme and this year's Chicago Dyke March was anti-police. And that's been a thread through a lot of these protest movements in the past year. The cartoon that you mentioned involved a woman who was on a car, a burning car, that said Chicago Police. And that is one of their expressions of protest against government, against military, against police. And in this case, she's holding a burning American flag and a burning Israeli flag. But why? I mean, why America and Israel? Why even bring that into this? In their mind, they're viewing the United States and Israel as, quote, settler colonial states. And they call them violent. And I think that's a very interesting choice because in a statement that they issued, they said that they reaffirm their right and the right of anyone with a conscience to critique the state of Israel. I don't see burning the flag of Israel to be merely a critique any more than I would say somebody at a tea party burning a pride flag would be merely a critique. It's a fairly violent expression. Were somebody to do that, it would put fear into the heart of somebody who is LGBTQ, who is there or anywhere. And so this kind of imagery and the sentiment behind it is something that people of goodwill should reject and do reject. I think it's very important for us to remember we're talking about 
not a wide swath of society in general, not a wide swath of the LGBTQ community, and not a wide swath of people who are dykes or who would go to dyke marches. This is a narrow group of individuals expressing their viewpoint, doing it in what we consider to be a totally inappropriate way, one that says that you must choose. You can be with us and say that you are a dyke, you can say that you are X, Y, and Z, but you cannot say that you are somebody who believes that Israel has a right to self-determination. That's not allowed. And there are many, many people who are in our network who self-identify as dykes and dyke march supporters, activists, organizers, who join with the rest of us and say, no, we refuse that. We refuse to choose among our identities. Now, has there been, as I said, that this is a demonstration that takes place in many cities across the country, not just Chicago, has there been a similar opposition to Zionism and Israel expressed in the LGBTQ sphere and at these other marches? Yes, we will see people holding signs at various protests. We saw it on Sunday. It's not the overwhelming theme in the LGBTQ community, particularly the left end of the community. The primary concern is about policing. And there are a lot of black and brown people who are in these protests, a lot of trans people. Their interaction with police is one that brings a lot of pain to them. There are a lot of stories that they can tell that we need to listen to. At the same time, we understand that that's not the entire LGBTQ community. But there's a strong theme within these protests that's anti-policing. There's a strong theme that says we demand health care. There's a strong theme that says we must fight transphobia. So there are a lot of important things that come forward. But there is also a segment within these protests that is anti-Zionist and a lot of people who are not. We had billboards around New York on Pride Day with our new inclusive Jewish pride flag. It's a pride flag, the traditional pride flag that has a Jewish star in the center, and it has what are known as the inclusive colors, black and brown and light blue and pink and white. And what we're saying is that that Jewish star within the flag stands for represents inclusion. You cannot remove that Jewish star from the flag and still speak of inclusion. And most people who would be at one of these protests would look at that and say that is a good thing, not all. And in the Chicago case, the people who were designing that and who made the statement that they did on the day that the actual dike march, which was canceled, by the way, due to uh, bad weather, um, they wouldn't agree with that sentiment. What I find interesting of what you just said was that the billboard, it sounds like the billboard featured the flag that was tossed out in 2017. Is that some version of it? A different iteration of it. In recent years, there's been an update to the pride flag to bring in the inclusive colors. So rather than the Jewish star that was superimposed on the flag, in this case, it's designed into it, in the center of it with those colors. Now, you mentioned an array of issues on display at these marches, health care, police brutality, a number of intersectional examples. But are you seeing people who support Israel 
increasingly shut out from displaying that conviction in progressive spaces like the Dyke March. We see people in progressive spaces, on campus, in civic organizations, being asked to choose, being forced to choose. Is it pervasive everywhere? No. But does it happen far too often? Yes. And that's why we have campaign with this new Jewish inclusive pride flag, which says we refuse to choose. We can hold our multiple identities and you don't get to define our identities. That's one of the things that we see with the attack of pinkwashing. Pinkwashing is an attack that falsely suggests that when somebody like me says something positive about Israel and the LGBTQ community, that I'm doing that to somehow divert attention away from real issues that go on between Israelis and Palestinians. And they say that somebody like me would be pinkwashing and that nothing could be further from the truth. They say that somebody who talks about Israel's accomplishments in the environment is greenwashing. There was even somebody who said that a program on Israeli cuisine that featured Jews and Arabs, they were dishwashing. And it's ridiculous. It's a silencing technique. We don't like it when it's done to us in the progressive spaces. We see that happening right now with the attacks on, for instance, critical race theory, etc., that they demonize a whole mindset in order to silence it rather than engaging in a thoughtful debate about real issues. It's not okay. So speaking of silencing, I mean, the organizers of the Chicago March felt silenced themselves. Instagram removed that offensive cartoon from the site and declared it a, a hate speech and also threatened to delete the group's account. And then people in response, organizers in response, asked people to capture a screenshot of the post and then also said that it would be printed on a T-shirt at some point. So I'm curious, first of all, what happened to the cartoon? I believe it was modified, if I'm not mistaken. And was there an attempt to engage them in a thoughtful debate, conversation, to explain why this was offensive and inappropriate? All of this happened very quickly, and there were overtures to the organizers. They're very steadfast in their perspective, and their perspective is one that views the right of the Jewish people to self-determination in our homeland as something quite abhorrent. And I think there's a need for a little bit more education and to look at this as a teachable moment, but to understand when you are burning the flag of Israel in a cartoon, you are putting out a message that you should view through a perspective of somebody burning a pride flag. It's not okay. It's not a mere critique of Israel. It's violent imagery. And I would think that there is a lot of violence in our society. There are people who are critiquing police violence. I don't believe that throwing more violence into the conversation is healing or healthy or gets in any way to the heart of the issue. A theory of change that involves confrontation can be healthy, but one that involves violence is beneath my level of respect for progressive organizers. So people ask often in these situations, was this anti-Semitic? 
And I'm curious what your answer is. I do believe it is. I believe that anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism are two sides of the same coin. Now, if somebody believes that there shouldn't be any nation states, John Lennon says, imagine there's no countries. That doesn't leave room for a Zionist state or for any other. And I'm not going to call that, John Lennon saying, imagine there's no countries, to be anti-Semitic. But when you single out the Jewish state and say it shouldn't exist, there's something in there that is deeply troubling and should be called out. Have there been dyke marches in other cities where support for Israel is quite welcome? One thing that we have to remember to do, because when we sit and we look at things on our computers, through social media, it becomes very easy to paint an entire constituency with one broad brush. And so you see evidence of the Chicago dyke march doing something that is wrong, and you might think it's every dyke march everywhere, or it's every pride march, or the entire LGBTQ community, and that's wrong. We don't like when that's done to us in the Jewish community. We don't like when that's done to us in the pro-Israel community. And we should remember that no less LGBTQ icon than Edie Windsor, who was the lead plaintiff in the marriage case, was a grand marshal of the Dyke March in New York and active with it. And so there are a lot of people having a very complicated conversation and very complicated spaces. And one of the things that is helpful is to understand that within the queer community, these are conversations that we are having. You may not hear them all the time, but they're conversations that we're having and trying to have in appropriate ways. Did the Black Lives Matter movement impact the LGBTQ movement, the Zionist movement. I mentioned Black Lives Matter just because that was such a powerful historic development in the past year. Did it shift any of these conversations any which way? The Black Lives Matter movement and leaving aside the platform of the movement for Black Lives, which had very strong anti-Zionist elements. The Black Lives Matter movement is about a situation with policing and communities of color in America that resonates broadly with many people in the LGBTQ community. One has only to read the history of LGBTQ people in cities across America that when there were crimes against us, the people couldn't call the police because they weren't on our side. When we march every year at the Stonewall anniversary, it is because of the police raiding a bar. So it is within our story and it's the lived experience of a lot of people today, particularly black and brown people within the LGBT community and most especially trans people within the LGBT community. So this is part of the unfinished business of America and I think it's very important for those of us who are Zionists who sit in these progressive spaces to have these conversations and to have them over and over and over again in ways that hopefully people can hear. And we need to recognize that not everybody will be able to internalize what we're talking about. And you keep your eyes forward. You keep your eyes forward 
there are people who are willing to listen, who do understand, who do stand with us, and we organize them, we mobilize them, we're grateful to them, we hope their numbers will increase, and it is sad that there are some people who just aren't going to be able to understand that. At least not yet. I like the use of the term unfinished business. There's a lot of that. (laughs) Ethan, thank you so much for joining us and, and talking about these complicated issues. Thank you very much. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat table this week is Brian Siegel, the director of AJC Miami. Brian, when you're talking with your family and friends at your Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Thank you, Sefi. At my Shabbat table, I'll be talking about how our hearts are broken for all of those who've been impacted by the unimaginable disaster of the collapse of the Champlain Towers South Building in Surfside. This is a personal tragedy for so many families and friends who continue to gather to await news about the fate of loved ones still missing. It's also devastating for our entire community. We all feel connected to this tragedy, and many of us either know people who are missing or have friends that are directly impacted. Over the past week, every conversation in South Florida starts with making the connection to Surfside and the collapsed building. Everybody in Miami, a city so closely tied to Latin America, Jewish immigrants and visitors, seems to have a connection. A relative, a neighbor. It's a reminder of how small and closely tied our Jewish community is here in Miami and all around the world. There are a list of emotions that many of us are feeling. Frightened, sad, confused, and angry. We're mourning all the deceased and praying for those who are unaccounted for and their loved ones. As we pray, mourn, and attempt to help and console our friends and families who are so devastated, I'm also feeling a sense of pride in our community. I'm proud and grateful to our first responders who've been tirelessly working around the clock, putting themselves in harm's way in attempts to find victims. I'm proud of the elected officials at the federal, state, and local levels, community leaders and volunteers who are finding ways of supporting those who have been affected by this tragedy. I'm proud of the rabbis and other religious leaders who are providing spiritual guidance and resilience at a time of tremendous pain. I'm proud of the role that Israel is playing in sending a team from the IDF, including its psychotrauma and crisis response unit, to provide psychological support and stabilization of the families and neighbors of those injured, killed, or affected. Earlier this week, I had the opportunity to meet with Israel's new minister of diaspora affairs, Nachman Shai who flew with several others from Israel this past weekend. He spoke about Israel's desire to offer assistance and to demonstrate the support, love, and solidarity of the people of Israel with our Miami Jewish community. Finally, I'm proud of our community for the generous outpouring of donated supplies for the families affected by this disaster. This has been a truly horrendous week, but the inspiration we find from those who step up in such times is at least a glimmer of hope for better times. Brian, thank you. My prayers are with the families and Surfside community as they wait for the worst news. At our Shabbat table, we will be talking about the importance of always speaking out against hatred, all forms of it, but making sure to show solidarity and empathy when a specific group is targeted and threatened. It's a message I hope my children will glean from the books they read and the colorful pictures they see on their pages. Unfortunately, though, That was not the message conveyed this week by the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, the professional association for those authors and artists I'm hoping will influence and inspire my kids. This week, 
the organization apologized for offending Palestinians and Muslims by putting out a statement condemning anti-Semitism that did not also condemn Islamophobia. Weeks ago, it put out another statement condemning anti-Asian hatred. No one batted an eyelash when in that statement it did not denounce other prejudices. But Chinese Americans are not held responsible for China's horrific treatment of the Uyghurs, nor should they be. Pacific Islanders are not held responsible for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. No, that privilege is doled out to American Jews, some of whom have never traveled to Israel or disagree with some of the Jewish state's policies. So when the Diversity and Inclusion Officer for the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, April Powers, put out the statement condemning the recent attacks on Jews carried out on American street corners, people took notice, including one former member of the organization in particular. Razan Abdin Adnani, a Palestinian-American writer and activist who describes her mission as teaching educators, caregivers, and organizational leaders how to put love and liberation at the center of everything they do. She immediately requested a statement condemning Islamophobia. Powers responded, If we see a surge against Muslims globally, as we have with other groups, expect us to speak out. Abdin Adnani responded by posting videos of Israeli police violence against Palestinians and tagging the society and powers herself. She also called out Powers, who was Jewish, for once saying she supported Israel. Powers responded by blocking Abdin Adnani's vitriol from her personal feeds, as well as from the society's social media channels. In an attempt to avoid politicizing what was intended as a statement of solidarity, Powers said she also proceeded to delete both anti-Israel and anti-Palestinian posts. Silencing voices, especially emotional ones, is usually not the right move. And in hindsight, Powers saw that. It's hard to know if that mistake led to her resignation and the organization's apology this week. But it's also hard to ignore that this all started with a statement denouncing anti-Jewish hatred. It's hard to ignore the double standard. What a shame that the same distrust and misunderstanding that demands these statements led to this outcome. It's a moment for introspection and discussion which we will have at our Shabbat table this week. Safi? I pay very close attention to politics, and politics often comes up at my Shabbat table, but I usually try to find something from the realm of culture or sports or history to talk about when we record these segments each week. I, I just don't want to become one note, you know? I'm breaking that rule this week, because two of our wackiest members of Congress are up to their usual tricks, and it's all I can think about. First, there's Paul Gosar of Arizona, who apparently had planned to host a fundraiser with Nick Fuentes, a notorious white supremacist and Holocaust denier who has been banned from YouTube for spreading hate. As a hubbub sprung up on Twitter over this offensive decision, Gosar tweeted, quote, not sure why anyone is freaking out. I'll say this, there are millions of Gen Z, Y, and X conservatives. They believe in America first. They will not agree 100% on every issue. No group does. We will not let the left dictate our strategy, alliances, and efforts. Ignore the left. Not to be outdone, the left-wing version of Gosar, Ilhan Omar of Minnesota, said in an interview with Jake Tapper that Jewish Democrats in Congress, quote, haven't been partners in justice. They haven't been equally engaging in seeking justice around the world. This kind of attack on American Jews is, frankly, a trend for Omar. Her defenders say that people don't like Omar because she speaks out against Israel, 
But historically, Omar has had next to nothing to say about Israeli policy, yet plenty of criticism for American Jews. After smearing her Jewish colleagues, Omar posted a thread on Twitter in which she listed organizations who she considers to be good Jews. Shockingly, some representatives of Jewish organizations even thanked her for her tweets. That's how the laundry cycle works in Congress. A member on the far right says something mildly anti-Semitic or, like Gosar, associates with a virulently hateful person. Gosar's supporters point to his staunch support of Israel and insist that he really is a friend of the Jews. Or how about this? A member on the far left attacks Israel or, like Omar, attacks American Jews who support Israel. Omar's supporters point to the radical Jews who like Omar because she shares their fringy agenda and insists that she couldn't possibly be anti-Semitic. And round and round it spins. We shouldn't let them get away with it. American Jews are about more than support for Israel, and we're certainly about more than immigration or climate change. We shouldn't be so eager for good relations with people who hate us or scorn us, especially when they are so far out on the lunatic fringe. People like Gosar and Omar can and should apologize for their hateful words and deeds. And then they should actually be better and not offend again. And only then should we consider them potential allies. And that's what I'll be talking about at my Shabbat table. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop onto Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producers are Kukong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.